So our scripture reading today is the uh, 10th chapter of the book of Isaiah. If you're able, stand with me with the reading of God's word. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karshmesh? Is not Hamath like Arpid? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. 
And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Orb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aeth, he has passed through Migron, at Mishmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba, the lay lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Geba of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Leashah, O poor Ananoth. Madmania is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bros, broths with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Thank you. Sure, as you are all aware, I deserve every bit of what I'm getting back at me today. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. We've been studying through the book of Genesis. Uh, one of the themes we have seen throughout the book of Genesis, and we will see once again, is this theme of creation and blessing. Uh, creation and blessing kind of permeate through the entire book of Genesis. Uh, we saw at the very beginning, God creates and he gives a blessing to mankind. Then last week we saw God start, as it were, a new creation after, after, the, uh, after the ark. And in chapter 9, he gives a blessing very similar to the one he gave to Adam. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what does it mean to be blessed? If creation and blessing, especially this idea of blessing, permeates through, in fact, the end of Genesis ends with a blessing from Jacob on his sons. If blessing is so important to the book of Genesis, it should be important to understand what, it, what blessing means. What does it mean to be blessed? We sometimes say this, that we are blessed. Is it jobs is it having a good job? Is that what makes you blessed? Is it being financially stable or having even extra money? Is that what it means to be blessed? Is it having family around you? Is that what it means to be blessed? Or is it just being happy? Is it living in a certain country? Are those what it means to be blessed? I would propose to you this morning that to be blessed is to receive the favor of God. The end of the day, a simple definition is to be blessed, is to receive the favor of God. Now, we have to be careful because that favor may be expressed in a number of different ways. There are many preachers who will say that that favor ex is exclusively expressed in financial prosperity. It's exclusively expressed in health. Those things are not necessarily what it means to be blessed by God. 
it is actually possible for a poor, childless person living in a totalitarian nation where they constantly face persecution to still be blessed by God. God's blessing is not bound by location. It is not bound by financial status. It is not bound by power. It is not bound by any of those things. Blessing from the Lord comes by obedience and trust in the Lord and that alone. So looking today in chapters 10 and 11, we're looking at this idea of blessing and man's response to blessing. Before we jump in, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for your text. That even in these passages that just seem like a, it may just be a list of names of people who've come and have died and things like that, Lord, that there is purpose in every single aspect of your text. That God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holy men of God spoke and wrote down with incredible purpose. And Lord, I pray as we go through these chapters that your glory would be shown, that we would see how you are a God who desires to bless mankind. And Lord, we'll also see our own response to that blessing. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be humble before your text, that we would understand it well, and that we would glorify you. The Lord, the, the purpose of the sermon is not to bring glory to the sermonizer, if you will, to the glory of the preacher. But Lord, the purpose of the sermon is to bring glory to you. I pray that we would leave this place today with a grown knowledge of who you are. Lord, as Ephesians 1, as Paul prays, that we would understand the ununderstandable. Lord, that we would have a greater understanding of the unsearchable riches of your grace and glory to, to us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that we would understand the heights, the depth, the width, and the breadth of who you are and your love for us. Praise in your name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 10 is probably one of those chapters that you may often overlook just to get to chapter 11 and read those verses and then kind of skip the rest of chapter 11. But what chapters 10 and 11 are actually doing, what we'll actually see here is that what chapter, chapters 10 and 11 are talking about the same area of time, the same things going on, but doing it from different perspectives, just kind of how like, how like Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 kind of gives you a, a broad picture, an oversight picture of creation, and Genesis chapter 2 kind of focuses in on part of that creation. Uh, so with Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Genesis chapter 10 shows the dividing of the people geographically and linguistically. Whereas chapter 11 will show theologically through God's judgment of Babylon and the dispersion of the nations how God divided the people. We'll see these things. So chapters 10 and 11 really do function together. They must be put together. Um, we're going to see here in, this, in chapter 10, in, in, uh, in the first, beginning and end of chapter 10, that blessing comes from God. Blessing comes from God. If you remember what we saw in Genesis chapter 9, what did God tell Noah to do? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. 
And here we see exactly that taking place. The people are being fruitful, and they're multiplying, and they're filling the land. This is oftentimes, uh, chapter 10 is called the table of nations. There are 70 different people mentioned here. 70 different people from whom 70 different nations come about. So here we have God describing and showing how the people are divided and how 70 nations come about. This is not necessarily saying that there were only 70 nations in existence at the time that Moses was writing. But what Moses is doing, this, this number 70 is actually used in other ancient Near Eastern literature to show a, a complete list, right? So it's it really what, what the number of nations is, is all that Moses is trying to say is, I've made a complete list, Right? Um, so theologically, what he's saying is there's a completeness to what is going on here. Not that he's trying to be comprehensive. He's not trying to show everything that's going on, but just giving a sense of completeness. So there's 70 nations. Um, this is also actually interesting. So what happens in the rest of the book of Genesis after chapter 11, all, after mentioning all these 70 nations, he focuses in on one of them through the man called Abraham and what will eventually be the people of Israel. Right, so he has done what he has done in chapter 10. We actually find out at the end of Genesis chapter 49, 50, that area, we find out that now Abraham has 70 people in his family. Abraham's long dead, but Jacob and his family number 70 people when they go to Egypt. Right, so there's, there's almost kind of a book ending here. We have Abraham becoming the nations for us, if you will, as Paul would say, that he is the father of all nations. You have this theological purpose that takes place at the beginning here in Genesis and then at the end of Genesis, showing that Abraham really fulfills and becomes all the nations for us, and ultimately his seed would become the one who is ruler of all of us. Um, be in, the, in the way that, that, that uh, Moses follows through these different genealogies and then ends up focusing in on Abraham, we're continuing to see what we, saw, what we started in, the book of, in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, God said that through uh, the seed of a woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. And then the question is, okay, well, who's the seed of a woman? Who is this seed? Who is this person that's going to come, this child that will come? Who is this person that's going to crush the head of the serpent? And then we see this again we, by, by continuing to show all these offspring and then focusing in at the end of chapter 11 on Abraham, we become uh, more, we, we get more information on where this seed is going to come from. And ultimately we do find, as I think I heard someone whisper, it is going to come through Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate seed. So we have here, even in Genesis chapter 10, in this list of names that might seem like just a list that we can skip over or skim over, we see God fulfilling his purpose in bringing salvation to the nations. In, uh, in addition to that, we see that God is God of all these nations. He's not just the God of Israel. He is also the God of all of these nations. Look at, let's start here in chapter 10, beginning in verse, uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 5, and we'll pause here real quick. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarma. Uh, now, Mike, see, I don't have it as bad. You, you know, we're, we're on the same page here. 
He got names, I got names. The sons of Javan, uh, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. This is actually interesting here. We, we, he, Moses divides chapter 10 into the sons of Japheth and the sons of Ham and then the sons of Shem. And here are the sons of Japheth. Who are these people? If you were to see this on a map and kind of see what this looks like, in fact, he even describes these as the coastland peoples. For Moses, this is the people on the frontier. This is the farthest reaches of the known world in Moses' mind here. And he lists all these people, um, these nations that come about. You may recognize some of these names if you're familiar with the rest of the scriptures. This is the fringe of the world. So later on in biblical literature, uh, when, God, when the focus of the scriptures is on God's universal rule over all nations, these nations again come into view. What's going to happen is that the sons of Ham, uh, especially the sons of Canaan and the sons of Shem, are going to become a major focus of the rest of the Pentateuch. But there's interesting places throughout Scripture where these sons of Japheth all come back into view, all in this idea of God being in control of the entire world, God having universal rule over the entire world. Um, God's plan then, we know from this, that God's plan includes all of humankind. In Psalm chapter 77, verses 8 through 10, if you were to compare these uh, two passages, it says, uh, in, uh, in Psalm chapter 72, verses 8 through 10, it says, May he, that is God, have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Here we see some of these, men, these, these nations mentioned again. Again in Isaiah chapter 66, when God... Uh, proclaims his dominion over all the nations. Look at Isaiah chapter 66, if you can get there. Uh, beginning in, uh, verse in verse 19, it says this, I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." See, scripture keeps all of this into view. What starts here in Genesis chapter 10 as just a mention of these coastland peoples, these people that are on the fringe of the universe, the fringe of the known world at the time. Scripture keeps them in mind and says God is going to have his dominion over all of the world, over all of the world, at, the, uh, at least coming from Genesis 10, over all of the nations. This actually comes back up again in the Pentateuch, in Numbers uh, chapter 24, when uh, Balaam is supposed to be cursing Israel, and instead it comes out as a blessing. In, Genesis, in Numbers chapter 24, uh, verses 7 and following, um, uh, and, then, and then continuing back again uh, in verse 17, uh, it says, uh, Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king, this is talking about, essentially what it's talking about is Christ coming, the, the, the king from the Lord. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? 
And it's for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay like a lion, and like a lioness who shall rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And if you jump down to, chat, to, verse, uh, to verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. In other words, that's to put him in subjection to him, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing is doing valiantly, and from uh, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. He looked then, uh, then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. Um, and if you skip down, it continues on describing these nations that God is going gonna, is gonna to take over. Um, and it says, verse 24, But ships shall come from Katim and shall affect Ashur and Eber, and he too shall, be, shall come to utter destruction. So we see God establishing his rule over all these nations, these nations that are listed in these first verses as the frontier nations, these coastland peoples in Genesis chapter 10 are all one day going to be under God's rule. This divine blessing, this, this blessing that, that the world will be fruitful and multiply and that God would have rule over them is for everyone, even these frontier people who don't get much attention. Then if we skip down after verse 5 and skip, we'll come back to uh, verses 6 through 12. But if we skip down to verse 13 through 32, we see these, this continued listing of nations. Um, verse 13, it says, uh, Egypt fathered Ludim and Ananim and Lehabim. And we're not going to name list all these people, but if you continue through and you look at Canaan's sons that are, that are listed, if you look through these lists, you'll, you'll see several different things that you'll, you should recognize. There's the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and, uh, and, and again, several other ones. These, these nations that are, in, that are in, um, in the land of Canaan that are ultimately going to be the enemies of the people of Israel when they enter into the promised land. We also see that Sodom and Gomorrah are listed in these, these children of Canaan, these cities that come out of Canaan. And then when we get to Shem, we see some more uh, lists of more people and more nations that are going to come about. These, uh, many of these people be, will be the enemies of Israel when they enter Canaan. Then we get this interesting... Uh, split that takes place in the end of chapter 10 here uh, with the people, uh, the, the ch uh, children Peleg and Joktan. Uh, verse 25, it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. His name means to divide. Uh, his, in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And then verse 26 and following, it follows this genealogy of Joktan. In fact, it's not until later in chapter 11 that Peleg's line is then, is then followed. So we have this split that takes place. There's actually theological purpose to this. The narrative follows Joktan into the account of Babylon, the Tower of Babel as we may know it. Peleg is not picked up till later. There's this intentional division. Shem, who is the promised son, he's the one through whom the blessing is going to come. The ultimate blessing, the seed, is going to come. Shem's line is divided into two different directions. Uh, one which moves away from God, as we'll see at the tower, and the other that leads to Abraham and his seed. 
Land, the land divided here, uh, when it says in, in Peleg's day, the land was divided, this is likely referencing the languages that were divided in Peleg's day. So this is not talking about some kind of cosmic shift in the ground and in the form of the, of the planet necessarily, but this particular instance is probably talking about the division of languages that takes place. So the Tower of Babel takes place in the time of Peleg, which is Joktan's line, uh, is involved in that. Um, again, as we already saw, Peleg's name is similar to the word for the word to divide. But as we see here, so what's the big takeaway from chapter 10 then as we've looked at this? We've seen that God seeks to bless all humankind. God seeks to bless all of humankind. We have these 70 nations. This is the entirety of the known world, at least in the narrative known world, uh, for Moses. This is the nations that Moses is concerned about, and he says, and basically is showing that God is God of all of these nations. Every single one of them, God desires to bless humankind. He has always desired that, and he still desires that today. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we find just that same idea. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up, will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is God of all the nations, and he seeks to bless all the nations. And as 2 Peter tells us, he is not willing that any should perish. He is not willing that any person would die apart from, their not, from Christ, apart from being blessed in Christ, from being, uh, uh, from being a believer. And if we wonder why God is slow sometimes, it may seem, if we look at the world around us, we see evil and we say, God, how come you're not doing this kind of stuff that we see you doing here in Genesis? You see evil in the world and you smack it down. Right? Second Peter tells us, he's not slow as some count slowness. What he is, is he's patient. He's patient. We must remember that my sin and your sin as well deserves eternal separation from God. Why hasn't God wiped us off the face of this planet? So often we're ready to point the finger at others, but what Scripture tells us is that God is a patient God. He wants to see more people come to know, come to know Christ as their Savior. His desire is to bless all mankind and has always been His desire. But even though God has desired to bless mankind... Secondly, we see this morning that man rejects God's blessing. Mankind rejects God's blessing. We see this already start in chapter 10. We skipped over a man named Nimrod. Nimrod, actually, if you, if you were to follow this passage out, the, 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 the entire narrative takes a break, as it were, when it gets to Nimrod kind of takes a break and kind of focuses on him a little bit. Look at chapter, verse 6. It says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalnah, in the cities of Shinar. From the land, that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehabathair, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Do you recognize some of the names of these cities? Babylon and Assyria specifically. Fast forward in scripture for a little bit. Beyond Genesis chapter 11. What nation takes the people of Israel into captivity? The nation of Israel. Remember after Israel and Judah are are, are split. Which nation takes Israel into captivity? Assyria. Which nation takes Israel? takes over Assyria and then, and then has control over Israel and then finally takes over Judah, Babylon. We have right here two of the uh, archetypal, if you will, enemies of God's people are announced in the people of Nimrod. And let's look at this. This is actually interesting. Nimrod is described in ways that actually even draw you to kind of already not want to like the guy. And kind of already sees something suspicious. First of all, he's talked about as being mighty. Right? He's talked about as being mighty. He's talked about as building a kingdom. Right? And he builds a kingdom and he, he lists all these cities he's building. What he's really doing is he is, he is the first use of the word kingdom in the text. And is, what we see Nimrod doing is he has these imperial, imperialistic type tendencies. He is building cities and he's building a kingdom for himself. He's raising up a kingdom for himself. It describes him as being mighty before the Lord. And we might be tempted to say, oh, he's mighty before the Lord. That's a great thing, right? He's doing this before the Lord. The word before the Lord does not always have positive connotations. Remember in the book of Jonah, for instance, it said, Jonah says that their evil has come up before me. The word before, if I understand, if I remember correctly, the word before can also have the idea of against This is not necessarily that he's doing this for the Lord, but he is doing this against the Lord. In fact, some early Jewish commentaries, really, really early Jewish commentaries, describe this as he was the ultimate rebeller against the Lord. Nimrod was this major rebeller against the Lord, and we'll see how that flows out um, in in his city of Babylon. The cities he, he built are ultimately the enemies of Israel. In the near context, one city is the center of a great rebellion against the Lord. And let's then move to chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Presumably, as we see, with the, as we see the end of Shem, Joktan's line kind of ends right before we, or, or kind of uh, flows right into the beginning of chapter 11. We kind of then get the idea that this is the descendants of Joktan along with Nimrod's people, that are living here in this city, or that, that are, that are in, in view in, this, in these verses. Uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, and it's topped in in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Let's pause there and kind of take a look at what's going on here. What is going on at this tower? What was so wrong about wanting to build a tower? They just wanted to go visit God, right? We wanted to build a tower into heaven so we could say, hey, God, how's it going, right? Is that what's going on here? Well, let's look at what's going on in the text. What does the text tell us about this city? There's a few, uh, a few ideas in the text that should already point us to seeing that this is not necessarily a positive thing going on. It says in verse 2, the people migrated from the east. Now, if you remember back into the early stages of Genesis, after, the, after uh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit in rebellion against the Lord, what happened? They moved east of Eden, right? And then you have, uh, after Cain rebels against the Lord and kills his brother Abel, what does he do? He moves east. And here now, after God recreates the world, after the flood, he recreates the world and, and sets up Noah, and he's got them in this place. He's built a garden, he's put, or Noah has, uh, has planted a garden to, to reflect back and kind of show back this is the promised land, just like the Garden of Eden was. Now here we are again. They, what do they do? They leave the promised land and they go east. Right, the figurative promised land. They're moving away from the promised land and they're going to the east. In the text, this, this, always used, this is always used in, in leaving the metaphorical promised land. This movement to the east is always a rebellion against the Lord. Uh, the last land mentioned was where Noah had planted a garden, so that's where they are leaving and they are moving then away from the garden, away from the promised land where Noah was planted. Then it says in verse 4, remember now, we're following, we're, we're, this is coming, this is interrupting right in the middle of the lineage of Shem, right? This is actually where it come, becomes really interesting. It says that they're going to make a name for themselves. Can anybody guess what the Hebrew word for name is? Shem. The people of Shem want to make a Shem for themselves, Right? Instead of the blessing that God was doing in, in blessing them and multiplying and wanting them to fill the land, they say, let us make a Shem for ourselves. They don't want God's blessing. They want to make a name for themselves. Lest we be dispersed. Remember the blessing God had given, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. We'll go all over the place and fill it. And they say, you know what? Let's make a name for ourselves, and so that we won't be dispersed, let's build a city here. And build a tower and reach up to heaven. That way we won't be dispersed, that way all that won't take place. What they're doing here is in very strong rebellion against the Lord. They're rejecting God's blessing and choosing rather to make a name for themselves and to try to disobey the, the, the blessing to fill the land. And their pride... Their arrogance in this matter leads ultimately to their destruction or leads ultimately to their punishment. Look how God responds here. And as the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel, or Babylon, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there 
the Lord dispersed them over all over the face of all the earth. Now think about what God does here. We might think this is kind of like this kind of mean thing that God does, or this is just judgment, bringing the hammer down, right? But in a very real sense, isn't God saving them from themselves? Their desire is to rebel against the Lord, and God says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be in the blessing. I want you to be blessed and be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. But you won't do that. So I'm going to make you do that by confusing your languages so that you have to be blessed. God does this to save them from themselves. This is an act of, of, of mercy, if you will, on these people even though it shakes up their plans. It's actually an act of salvation, saving them from, their, from themselves. Now looking then at our own lives, our own pride and independence actually diminishes our experience of divine blessing as well. When we do what the people here did and say, I can do it on my own. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to get that job promotion. I'm going to gain that power. I'm going to get that position. I'm going to do that thing so that people will remember me. So that people can remember my name. When we do that, when we try to make a name for ourselves, we actually diminish the ability to receive blessing from the Lord. Because blessing is about submission and about humility, not about pride and independence. It's about depending on the Lord. It's not about doing things apart from Him. You want to be blessed? Depend on the Lord. You want to have God's hand of blessing on your life? Trust Him. Turn to Him. So leads to our third point this morning, be blessed. Let God give you a name. God then returns to this idea of blessing and filling the earth, continuing Shem's line. He gives a, he's, he's blessing in the line of Shem. He's giving them a name, a Shem, for themselves. God is creating. He is, he is uh, producing blessing. Again, we'll see the end of this is, is when Abram is born, right? And it's through the seed of Abraham that God will bring Jesus Christ. So God, is, God switches after, after mankind is punished for making a name for themselves. He makes a name from Shem's line through the line of Peleg. You look at this in verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When, then this actually goes back to the same formula we saw in uh, Genesis chapter 5. Uh, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. You also can see, if you, as you look at these, this list, if you were to read through this passage, if you remember Genesis chapter 5, people lived a long time, 900-something years, 800-something years. You can notice already, after the flood takes place, that people die earlier and earlier. You see 403 years, 209 years, or um, uh 207 years uh, afterwards and 119 years after, after he had a son. You know, it, anyway, it gets lower and lower and lower and lower. People are living less and less. That blessing of the Lord, that long life is, is going away. And ultimately, Abraham comes through this line. God is restoring the blessing that he was, that he was giving by giving them a name. So how can we allow God to give us a name? 
Right? If that's the goal, instead of to make a name for ourselves, for God to give us a name, how can we do that? It's through humility and submission. Do not seek self-aggrandizement. Don't try to make yourself great. Let God take control. Have you ever been accused of something? You ever had rumors spread, around, spread about you? Instead of taking that into my own hands and saying, saying, all right, you want to spread rumors about me? Let me tell you what the truth is. Let me fix this problem for myself. Instead, put your reputation in the Lord's hands. Say, you know what? God knows. I can trust him with it. I don't need to get on Facebook and defend myself and start arguing with people. I don't need to go into a town meeting and try to tell everybody, hey, look, that's not what happened here, guys. Now, this is what actually happened. You know, I don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. We can trust, entrust our reputation to the Lord's hands. Our goal is to make God look great, not ourselves. If our goal is to make ourselves great, we're only going to end in diminishing our ability to be blessed by God. Don't seek praise and credit. When you serve the Lord, don't say, hey guys, remember, check out what I did. No, seek to give glory to the Lord. Give him the glory. It's actually interesting. In Philippians chapter 2, God gives the church some interesting instruction about, being, about, about seeking humility. He talks about how we're supposed to function as a church. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have unity of mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. And this is interesting. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, now get this, bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ received his name from the Father. His own act of humility in suffering on the cross gave him a name which is above every name. Now, he already deserved it. We know that because he's already the divine son of God. But the text tells us there is something that happens, that something shifts about who Jesus is when he dies on the cross. And don't take that too far. But the text does say there is something added to him in some sense that is because of Christ's humiliation that he was given this name that was above every name. We don't know exactly how to, how to deal all that out necessarily. That, that kind of boggles our mind. How could the God, the very Son of God, the divine Son of God, have more glory added to himself? How? 
But scripture describes it that way. And he's given this name. And then if you're a Christian, God gives you a name too. If you've trusted Christ as your savior, he has given you a name as well. First John chapter three, verses one and two says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let God give you a name. You want to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? First of all, if you are a Christian, you are blessed. You've been given a name. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And you are called children of God. But as a Christian, how do you receive blessing from the Lord? How do you live out this blessing that, just, that is already yours? It's to humble yourselves and submit to God's rule over your life. To be blessed is to trust God's provision. To be blessed is to rest your identity with him. Who I am, it doesn't matter What you guys think about who I am, what matters is what God thinks about who I am. My identity is found in Christ, in Christ alone. My identity is not found in being a pastor of this church. My identity is not found in being a janitor at Gordon ISD. My identity is found in Christ, in Christ alone. That's how you receive blessing. That's how you can be blessed as a condition, not as a circumstance. To confuse blessing with material things or with family size or with status, job, or otherwise or with your nation is at the end of the day, idolatry. To confuse those two things is idolatry. To say, I am blessed because I have X amount of dollars in my bank account. That's saying that the X amount of dollars is God, not the God who gives the blessing. To say, I am blessed because I live in a certain nation is to say that this nation is God. Let's not be idolatrous. Blessing is given by the Lord alone. So are you blessed? Are you truly blessed? Are there areas in your life where pride is keeping you from fully experiencing God's blessing? Do you need to give your life to Christ and to receive the ultimate blessing from God of a relationship with him? You are not blessed in the status point of things, right? You're not conditionally blessed. You're not in the condition of being blessed until you are found in Christ. The Son of God took on humanity, lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, died on a cross for your sin and for mine, and rose again three days later so that we might have life. And those who are found in Him are blessed. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, knowing that you can't save yourself and that you need him to do the saving for you. If you're a believer, have you sought to spread God's blessing through the world? Do you take the gospel with you wherever you go? 
you share the gospel with people so that they may be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to look at this passage. God, you are a God who seeks to bless all humankind. And God, you've chosen to do that through your church. You've given the church a purpose. That purpose is to spread your blessing through the whole world, through the proclamation of the gospel. Pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who does not know you as Savior, that they would submit that to you today, that they would, that they would call upon you and be saved. Lord, I pray that you would draw us Christians, those of us who are believers, that you would help us to put aside pride and arrogance and our independence and to live in dependence and reliance on you and to live in the blessing that we've already received, to live out that blessing that we've already received. And I pray, Lord, that we would take that message of salvation and hope and blessing to those around us. Praise in your name. Amen.